Welcome to PQ Talk on Call, a podcast dedicated to current and aspiring intensivists. My name is Pradeep Kamat. I'm a pediatric critical care physician at Emory University School of Medicine. And my name is Rahul Demania, a current second year pediatric critical care fellow. Today's episode is dedicated to post-operative management of liver transplantation in the pediatric intensive care unit. We are delighted to be joined by Dr. Joe Maglioka and Dr. Rene Romero. Dr. Maglioka is the Associate Professor of Surgery in the Department of Surgery at Emory University School of Medicine. He's also the Surgical Director of Adult and Pediatric Liver Transplantation at Emory University Hospital and Children's Healthcare of Atlanta. We're also delighted to be joined by Dr. Rene Romero, who is the Professor of Pediatrics at Emory University School of Medicine and is also the medical director of the liver transplant program at Children's Healthcare of Atlanta. Children's Healthcare of Atlanta has one of the largest liver transplant programs in the country. They have done over 600 pediatric liver transplants to date. I will turn it over to Rahul with our patient case. An 18th month old with history of biliary atresia is admitted to the PICU after orthotopic whole liver transplant. He is admitted to the PICU intubated with Doppler ultrasound showing vascular patency postoperatively. AST and ALT are pending. You are the intensivist coordinating care with the transplant and hepatology team. Dr. Romero, we wanted to start with you and talk a little bit about what are common indications for pediatric liver transplantation. Certainly, and thank you for inviting us to speak with you today. In the country, there is about between 500 and 700 pediatric liver transplants uh, per year. And that's been a steady number for the last 20, 25 years. Across the country, it's about 40% of those transplants occur in patients who have been born with uh, biliary atresia. The rest of the transplants, about 10%, 15%, are going to be from acute uh, liver failure, uh, oftentimes from unidentified causes, indeterminate cases. And then we have a smattering of many different indications of various childhood cholestatic diseases, such as Allergiel's syndrome, progressive familial intrahepatic cholestasis syndromes, and many other metabolic diseases. There's a fair number, probably on the order of 5%, that are from malignancies, primarily hepatoblastoma in the younger age group. Thank you so much for sharing. Dr. Romero, when we hear about pediatric uh, liver transplantation, the term PELD score is commonly thrown out. Do you mind describing what is the PELD score and how does that relate to prioritization for liver transplant? Sure. Well, one of the key drivers of the evolution of organ transplantation overall is to try to have an equitable and fair system of organ allocation. There's always many more potential candidates for organ transplantation than there are organs available. So I'll put in the pitch, be an organ donor. And so each organ has under the umbrella of our UNOS the United Network for Organ Sharing, and the OPTN, which is the actual mechanism of how organs are distributed. Each organ has its own allocation system with prioritization with the goal of presumably attempting to get the organ to those who are most at need or the sickest. So there have been many evolutions over this over the last 20 years. The PELD score was derived after combining data 
of all pediatric liver transplants, looking at it retrospectively and trying to identify with the goal of identifying laboratory parameters that identified a patient who was likely to die within three months of listing or going into the ICU because we wanted to benefit the children. So that PELD score, taking in all these variables, end up with five parameters that are put into a mathematical equation to identify highest priority, with the higher number being those who are listed, who get the first crack at a potential organ. And that's determined by Billy Rubin in the cases of children, albumin, growth parameters, and INR will be the main criteria within the PELD score. Excellent. And so just to summarize, the PELD score contains bilirubin, INR, albumin, age, as well as growth parameters. Correct. And just to clarify too, the the PELD score is only used for children up to 12. Exactly. Uh, Beyond 12, it goes over to something called the MELD score, which is used through with adults. And it's just a more narrow set of parameters, but tend to more accurately really reflect the disease in, in older kids and adults. And yes, and that's primarily because the youngest age group is overwhelmingly represented by recipients who have biliary atresia, and there's a whole other epidemiology for the older age group uh, child. Dr. Magliuka, besides technical aspects, would you please highlight major differences in whole organ versus split liver transplantation? Sure. So, uh, you know, first of all, thanks for having us. I think this is a, a great format for folks to learn about this. So, Liver transplantation is pretty unique amongst all of the solid organ uh, groups for transplantation. So the liver, as you probably know, can regenerate itself, which allows us a little latitude in, in some of the things we can do. So, you know, kids are much harder to get organs for because we have to wait for a pediatric donor if we want to get a whole organ. One of the things we can do is actually cut down an adult deceased donor liver and, and transplant that in a child. And then as techniques evolved, we started to split them where we take the larger segment that's left and put it in an adult or a larger child and the small segment and put it in in a small child. So there's lots of technical aspects that go along with it. The older data really suggested that a split liver or cut down uh, transplantation was inferior. And if you looked at the the old split data, it suggested that the long-term outcomes weren't as good. But as transplantation has evolved, Actually, we, we see that using a split liver or a whole liver, the long-term outcomes are, are pretty much equivalent. Really, the difference has to do with stuff that happens in the periop period. So as you can imagine, it, there's a lot going on when you cut an organ in half, essentially. There's uh, lots of things you need to take into consideration in terms of you know bleeding and bile leaks and all that stuff. So there tend to be some more complications when using a segment of a liver as opposed to a whole liver. But overall, the outcomes are, are, are quite good. So, you know, you have to, it's a trade-off when you have someone who's waiting on the transplant list and they're pretty sick and, you know, you're better off, there's a survival advantage to getting transplanted and dealing with these other things as opposed to waiting and potentially dying while waiting. With the evolution of split livers, that's how live donor liver transplantation evolved because we realize it's safe Children generally need a small segment of liver and taking a small segment of liver from an adult and transplanting it is really, you know, we we know that it's a perfectly normal liver from a perfectly healthy adult or we wouldn't let them be a donor. And since the liver regenerates and grows with the child, it's a wonderful option. 
And Renee, we always often hear you guys say that uh, the liver is immunologically privileged. So do you all look at ABO compatibility, anything between the donor recipient? How, how does that work? Can you just comment on that really right. quick? Yes, fortunately, liver transplantation in general requires less immunosuppression than other solid organs with the or luminal organs. So lung and intestine generally require more. Kidney, uh, heart is up there, and then kidney, and then we're uh, liver transplant is kind of toward the end of that. We don't match HLA antigens, frankly, because we don't have time to, <laughs> and our patients are, uh, and we don't have to in order to get good outcomes. Crossing blood groups is we do match to compatible blood types for the most part, because there is late graft loss with that, with the exception of the very young who have not been sensitized. And so generally under one year of age, if we can cross blood groups fairly easily with today's degree of immunosuppression. It's been really nice to hear the evolution between split liver and whole liver transplant. And I think the summary for our listeners is that it is a case-by-case basis, really weighing the risks and the benefits. Dr. Magliocca, now that we kind of changed the setting into the operating room, do you mind briefly describing the general process for liver transplantation? Sure. It's a pretty technically complex operation. Really, it can be thought of in three different phases, really. So the first phase is the hepatectomy. And often this is actually the hardest part of the operation because a lot of our patients that have had prior surgery, you know, half of them are, are biliary atresia patients. They've had a former Kasai, et cetera. And things can be pretty stuck. Add on top of that, the coagulopathy that goes along with liver failure, with portal hypertension, you know, it can be a little bit treacherous sometimes. But during that phase, it's in general, talk about evolution, the way things have been managed in the OR by the anesthesiology team has evolved over time too, because, you know, we used to aggressively correct coags, we used to aggressively transfuse, and all of that increases the amount of the portal hypertension, it increases the amount of bleeding, and it's a vicious cycle. You get more coagulopathy, et cetera. So the anesthesiologists have gotten quite good at uh, managing and using judicious use of pressors, et cetera. After that, it's uh, really, you enter the second phase, which is the anapatic phase. You know, the liver's been devascularized, it's removed, there's no liver in the patient, and it's the time that we're putting the new liver in. And then after that is the reperfusion phase, which is during the time of reperfusion, things can often get a little bit unstable because during reperfusion, there's a lot of mediators that are released from the, the liver, there's from the clamped blood vessel, from the clamped vena cava, from the clamped portal vein, and patients can often get a little bit unstable, but it's usually pretty transient, thankfully. After that, things become managed more like a standard operative patient. So it's more to do with anesthetic management, but there really are three distinct phases in the OR. That's really uh, helpful to highlight. So the hepatectomy and hepatic, as well as the uh, reperfusion phase. We typically hear during sign out intervals related to ischemia time. Do you mind commenting on the specifics of that and what concerns you with uh, the time intervals? So essentially when a liver is, you know, after it's been procured from the donor, it has been flushed with preservation solution and then it's kept on ice to keep metabolic activity to an absolute minimum. So there's only a certain amount of time that the liver can survive this. And as the thing that we worry about is as that time starts to get longer and longer, the risk of something called primary non-function, which is literally when you put the graft in and it just doesn't work, 
begins to increase. It's almost like a U-shaped curve, this, this risk of primary non-function. So the tiniest organs from, from small, small infants, the risk is actually a little bit higher. And then as, it, as the, the organs get a little bit larger and you know, the donor gets a little bit older, because the liver, you know, if you imagine you have a donor from a, a six-month-old child, the liver is really fully not mature. So the risk decreases through adulthood. And then as you age, as livers get older and older, um, then uh, the risk of primary non-function goes up. So really there's a, um, there's a, there's a amount of time. The general rule of thumb is we like to keep it less than eight hours, cold time, like, so in a box in, a, in you know, sitting on ice in a cooler, but with younger organs and generally that's what we're using with the children, um, that can be extended out sometimes to, you know, 10 hours, et cetera. But, you know, the operation can be so complex. We, we can, we can burn through that time pretty quickly. That's for sure. In terms of, make, yeah, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead. No, I'm saying in terms of warm ischemia time, when we're talking about that, that's actually the time when we take it out of ice and we're sewing it in. And obviously you want to do it as quickly as possible. And the liver thankfully can take a little bit longer uh, lengths of warm ischemia, but it, that's usually thankfully not something that causes us much trouble. Is there a time interval for warm ischemia time as a general rule of thumb? Well, in general, once we take it out of ice and want to, to sew it in and get it reperfused, you know, ideally it's less than half an hour, but in children, it can be a little bit more complex. So, you know, usually we see it somewhere between a half an hour and 40 minutes. You know, once you start getting beyond that is I think probably when my, uh, my anxiety level starts to, to go up a little bit, but it's, it's usually not that. Dr. Magliuka. What are the major red flags for, uh, for us as ICU doctors to watch for in the immediate post-operative period when you admit the patient to the PICU? You know, and I always tell the patients that I am, uh, I am like, the, like a mother hen kind of. Uh, I, it's my job to think of all the bad things that can happen and you know, just keep my antenna up and my radar up for, to, to see them. So you know, the things that we would look for, one, most importantly, if, is the liver working. So how do we know the liver's working? Usually we see the INR start to correct. Uh, we see the patients, you know, they'll wake up pretty easily. They're hemodynamically pretty stable. The unfortunate thing is that's not always true, particularly in kids. Uh, so sometimes we'll, uh, you know, we think the liver's working fine and all of a sudden the numbers are still creeping up and, and we're saying, gee, what's, you know, what's going on here? Thankfully that doesn't happen very often, but for someone who's caring for the patient, I think the things we want to look for, you know, are, are, you know, what does the drain output look like? Is it blood? You requiring lots of transfusion? Is the INR climbing? Is the patient waking up? Those are things that are really important in the early, in the early uh, transplant phase. Yeah, I think it's a lot of uh, similar gestalt that you would have with all patients. How stable are they? <laughs> are they waking up? Respiratory status good? no vasomotor instability, not needing pressors, acidosis uh, re, uh, resolving, resolving or not present, and then coagulopathy improving. I think though, with that kind of, from a physical combination, physical examination and laboratory studies, that you can get a, a feel of whether this is a trend. It's really a trend, right? Mm -hmm. uh, you wanna see a trend of improvement and that's the, the key. 
Absolutely. And so in this post-operative phase, it's not only a combination of attention to detail, but also really good communication as this is a multidisciplinary effort between the transplant team, hepatologists, as well as the intensivists. Dr. Kamath, you've had a fair share of experience in the pediatric ICU managing uh, these patients. Are there some specific organ system points which you want to highlight for acute post-operative management? Yes, absolutely. And I and I welcome uh, Dr. Magliuka and Dr. Romero to chime in. So I think one thing that we have we as a center do is we extubate most of our patients in the OR itself. And they have done very well uh, post-operatively coming to the PQ uh, without a breathing tube. Uh, this decreases the incidence of ventilator-associated pneumonia, and studies have shown it actually decreases the length of stay in the ICU. Oh. Uh, we watch their um, cardiovascular system very closely. Most patients coming to us will have two arterial lines and uh, central venous lines. Uh, so we watch uh, their blood pressure very closely. Uh, and as they pointed out, you know, the patient can have bleeding so that it, it is a good indicator to look at the heart rate and the blood pressure. Uh, my job as an ICU doc is also to manage uh, their pain. And what has worked really well for us is uh, the PRN uh, morphine uh, that is used along with uh, dexmedetomidin uh, is very well tolerated uh, by the patients. My job there is to make sure that I do not drop the blood pressure so the perfusion to the liver stays intact. We also use uh, occasionally ketamine infusions because it maintains the hemodynamics. I want to emphasize we do not not recommend or do not use any benzodiazepines in these patients. Uh, I also want to uh, let folks know that we watch um, urine output very closely and as we will check all the electrolytes and all the uh, liver functions. We do not do anything without consulting with our transplant team and the liver team. Uh, so I would highly emphasize that before you make any changes to these patients, especially giving blood transfusions or correcting any numbers, I would really uh, highly recommend running that by the transplant surgeon and by the liver team. Modern medicine is a team sport and we, we play it as a team. We don't want to micromanage. That's, that's not what we try to do. Really, it is a team sport. But at the same time, we like to know about things because in transplant patients, they're kind of a little different beast. And and there, there may be things that we kind of know and, you know, things were very raw inside and we're going to need transfusion or things are very dry and, you know, hey, we shouldn't be needing transfusion. What's going on? Um, we're monitoring the trends, as, as Dr. Mayer said, of the coags, you know, and, you know, if things are dry, but the INR is three, you know, we, we're just not going to treat the number because truly the coagulation system, and we've learned this from operative management too, which is why we don't just correct coags as a number is because the, the coagulation process and uh, thrombosis process really exists in this equilibrium. And while the numbers may be off, the equilibrium is fine and that's why they don't bleed. Uh, so we, we handle them very carefully. So we want to know about that stuff. And it's, it's just because it, it affects what we're, you know, things that we're watching, et cetera. I do want to comment a little bit about the transfusion thing, because I think this has evolved over time. But we used to really try not to transfuse these patients to, because you can get a hyperviscous syndrome and, and they can be more thrombotic. And in tiny little blood vessels, that's, you know, that's obviously the risk is a little bit higher. As a matter of fact, if you compare kids to adults, the risk of thrombosing the artery, which could be a, could be a catastrophic problem, is higher. 
So we used to really try to keep them like non-viscous and a low hemoglobin, et cetera. But sometimes that comes at a cost of having to add presser. And my personal philosophy has been changing over time on the way I manage this. And the truth of the matter is, you know, nobody's going to transfuse a kid up to a, a hemoglobin or a hematocrit of 45. Um, and if I had to really pick one, I would prefer to be off presser and a hematocrit of 30, if that's what it takes. Because I think that I personally think the presser has more of a negative impact than the hematocrit of 30. So again, it's, it's, it's an evolving process. We're all learning, but, and again, we, we, we want to manage this as a, as a team. And when we ask everybody to give us a call, it's, it's not that we're trying to micromanage. It's just because we really, there, it, it allows us to really have a good feel of how things are, are progressing. What has certainly helped in this uh, team management uh, and is the approach I think that is taken at most uh, major uh, transplant centers is a protocolization of the management. Everybody uh, knows what is to be expected at what times. And what has gone a long way in facilitating that, of course, is a standardized uh, order set uh, for post-operative uh, management that really ha uh, that's been agreed to ahead of time and pretty well lays out what parameters to call for with the ability to always communicate if we think if the bedside nurse feels something is a little bit different, right? So it is definitely experience in liver transplantation is a big help in, in management. Thank you, Dr. Romero, for really highlighting the importance of how standardization of care can really even lead to optimization uh, of care. And as a fellow, I truly have made those 2 a.m. phone calls to both the transplant and hepatology team. And I think it really helps to have not only a coordinated effort, but some discipline regarding different management steps uh, that we take in the post-operative period. Because otherwise, there's way too many options. <laughs> and, and then you can never be sure of what you're doing. I would. I just want to add the other uh, comment to you know the reasons why patients can be extubated early on in the course has a lot to do with their pre-transplant status and what how they've been managed beforehand. And so you know that so that's definitely a case by case kind of uh, scenario. But uh, working hard to be a stable in a sick patient ahead of time. Uh, really does facilitate their care afterward. So how sick a kid uh, is coming out of transplant almost always directly correlates with how sick they were going in. <laughs> I want to wrap up the podcast by talking about two important aspects in the post-operative management, one being nutrition and the other one being immunosuppression. Dr. Romero, let's start with nutrition. What are your fundamental management principles in the post-operative period when it comes to nutrition? Well, number one is what type of biliary anastomosis was performed. So if it's a fresh Ruin Y Colodoco jejunostomy, we know we're going to have a little bit longer delay before starting any enteral feedings. If it's a Colodoco jejunostomy, so the, the donor bile duct is connected to the a limb of a, a small intestine in a biliary atresia patient, they've already had that jejunostomy constructed. If that's not being revised, 
then you can usually, again, in a patient who's extubated, stable, and progressing well, oftentimes start initiating enteral feedings by uh, day two or three. Um, and most of the time, we are not utilizing parenteral nutrition in the first 24 to 36 hours. If there's a, de if there's a delay in uh, establishment of enteral uh, nutrition, that's when uh, after about 48 hours uh, postoperatively, then we're going to be initiating uh, parenteral nutrition. And that the, the specifics of that depend on the actual condition of the patient, but it's going to generally start with a gram per kilo of protein, at least a gram per kilo of some form of fat, and then adequate dextrose, at least initiate the process. But we definitely favor enteral feedings usually by NG tube in this small group that we're talking about, this small age, uh, young age group, at least to begin with. Always wa watching for signs of infection in the post-operative period as these children will be likely studied on immunosuppressants. Uh, Dr. Romero, can you comment on what are the most common immunosuppressants that we use and when are they usually started in this patient? So intraoperatively, they're already getting large doses of uh, steroids. They'll also get an IL-2 receptor blockade that's within the operating room. The specifics of subsequent immunosuppression will vary very much dependent on the center. There are variations amongst uh, transplant centers as to how much additional uh, immunosuppression gets started. We are a tacrolimus-based program. Our standard approach for most transplant patients is to use uh, tacrolimus and ultimately steroid prednisone as the basis of the initial several months of immunosuppression. Um, we start the tacrolimus in standard cases by the day after surgery, like uh, 12 hours, 36 hours afterward. And then uh, we have specific targets of immunosuppression levels as general guidelines for uh, months post-transplant, which we don't really need to get into here. <laughs> this was a wonderful podcast, and I do really want to ask both of you regarding any last-minute clinical pearls which you wanted to highlight. Dr. Maglioka, what are some key takeaways on your end? I think the most important thing that well, I, every time I have an opportunity, I tell people, if you're not an organ donor, you should sign up to be an organ donor because, I mean, quite frankly, just, there's far more people waiting for organs than those that are available. So be an organ donor. And in terms of um, post-operative care, particularly you know, in the ICU, as I said, it's, it's really a, I'm very appreciative that we have wonderful collegiality with the PICU service, and it really is a it's a team sport. And the reason our outcomes at at Choa are so good, and you know we have we can see anyone's outcomes across the country in terms of all centers. The reason they're so good is because it is really a, a, a team event, and we take it very seriously. Dr. Romero, we're all in this. Uh, I guess my parting comment is that we're all in this because we see the difference that it can make in the lives of uh, patients and uh, children and, and their families. What was so striking to me in my career, children in the late 80s and early 90s were, were, were dying of their liver disease before they ever got a chance to get transplanted. And to see 
the transformation from this incredibly sickly child to someone who's healthy is just, you know, overwhelming. And so that's, that's a major factor. And then I think just the overwhelming, all of the, what was intriguing was all of the science, all of the technical aspects, all of the uh, procedural aspects and then you lay on top of it all of the spiritual and kind of goodness of donating to help someone else live. There's nothing like it in medicine. That is absolutely wonderful. And I am so glad that we could speak on this topic uh, today. This concludes our episode on pediatric liver transplantation, and we hope that you found value in this short podcast. As listeners, we welcome you to share your feedback and place a review on our podcast. And Pick Your Doc on Call is uh, co-hosted by myself, Dr. Uh, Rahul Demania, and Dr. Pradeep Kamat. Thank you so much, Dr. Maglioka and Dr. Romero for being here today uh, to share your thoughts. Thank you.